Welcome to Project Update, a podcast about the projects we're working on and the expectations we are lowering. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Uh, doing really good, Joe. How you doing? We'll get to that. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, yeah, good. Ish? Sure. Uh, <laughs> my... My default answer is I'm doing really good, but you know, not always. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been, I've got all the platitudes and pleasantries so confused lately. The other day I was attending a, a service and somebody offered me something and I said something along the lines of, don't mind if I won't thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> just, it just all just came out at once. Like, <laughs> let me just throw all these sentiments out here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a core dump of all your pre-recorded greetings right so you got your second shot i did um got the second shot uh had approximately the reaction i was expecting which was worse than i hoped but better than i feared hmm. um i've seen some stuff online recently of people not getting their second shot because they're concerned about having a worse reaction than the first time yeah that's not a good idea yeah um i i had a really pretty miserable 24 hours um i slept most of it but it still just sucked um that said that was the reaction of my body when it thought it had COVID, but didn't. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine how bad actually having COVID would be. Yeah. Most of the people that I know who have had COVID, I mean, the people that I know personally who have had it survived. <clears throat> but they talk about like a week or two of misery. Mm. Just, just horrify yeah so yeah i'll take the week I, i'll take the day trading one day for one week easy trade yeah and that's that's covid light that i had fine all about it yeah i i actually i made a deal in my head that if i needed to get you know we, we start getting a bunch of variants or something and i need to get monthly booster shots i'll give up a day a month to not give up multiple weeks of my life yeah i don't think it'll be monthly booster shots it'll probably be more like an annual thing it'll probably yeah. eventually just be part of the flu shot yeah or i, I was just trying to think of worst case scenario <clears throat> and the worst case scenario would be monthly boosters and i i'm okay with it yeah. i'm fine no matter how much that sucked i'm okay with it because i don't want the real thing so I had my first shot right after the last show. I think I cut mm -hmm. it out from the episode because it was boring, but I went and got it that afternoon. <laughs> and uh, I went, it was just super fast. It was at the County Board of Elections. They have a, a huge early voting site and they converted that into a huge vaccine center. And it was really efficient, just in and out, minimal questions, minimal contact, just get the jab, wait for a little while and get out of there. But I'm just sitting there wondering, like, we have an election coming up. Where are people going to vote? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. But I've, I can have my, my next shot in uh, about two weeks. It'll be 
Good to get that over with. So what have you been working on? Well, we had uh, we had a big a big meeting scheduled mm. for the like the early in the day after I got my shot, mm-hmm. I think, and I was really looking forward to it to get me kickstarted and and back on track because nothing will make me code faster than a person who has stopped dead in their tracks waiting for me. Mm-hmm. Like that's just, just, that breaks through everything and it's just an intolerable state. Um, and you canceled on me due to pain. Yeah. And I'm really glad because I'm not sure I would have been conscious then. <laughs> I, uh, I did office hours that afternoon and... 17 minutes into office hours, I looked at the clock and went, no, 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 it was 20 minutes in. I looked at the clock and went, wait, this hasn't been going on for an hour? I was just exhausted, just drained. Mm. I was like, okay, no, 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 I can can tough this out. We're having conversations about stuff that I'm really interested in. Let's go. And I looked at the clock again, like half an hour later and seven minutes had passed. Oh, wow. I was like, I'm... I'm going to have to call out guys. If you want to continue having the conversation, I can leave this window open. It was a small attended uh, session and the people who were in the group are fans and well-conversed anyway. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of part of the extended community that helps support the product. And I'm really grateful to those people, but I could not take part in that conversation. So yeah, all of that fell apart. Um, I, so we're rescheduled for this week mm-hmm. and again, really looking forward to it. Um, you say that even now, if, even if you can't move your arms, <laughs> I want you to just sit there and tell me what to do, Joe. Okay. And I will do those things. Hermunculus um, coding. <laughs> <laughs> Joe will be my code muse. Just sit there and play the harp. It's actually just a whole bunch of tiny changes. Like I've, I've finished the initial pass on all of the list views in the system and each of them, not everyone, but many of them have minor changes to make to properties that are being returned from the backend or just questions about how to display certain types of data, Uh things like that. Like none of it was like, I'm going to bug Dave with this now. It's more just capturing it in the issue and just work talk through all of it at once and make you a big to-do list because it'll be it'll be a whole bunch of small work like i doubt there's a day's worth of work that'll Mm -hmm. come out of this for you but it's just a it's getting to the point now where i have so many open issues it's like there are more open issues on this project than under like unstarted issues it's just everything is open and i typically i I'm very much a monotasker. Like we're building this feature and now this feature is done and now we'll build the next feature. Right. And I'll typically build 35 features at once. So yeah, the list view stuff, I'm working through that. Um, You know, there's some changes and revisions to do over time, but those are, it was important to get those done first because the, the definitions for those list views will be reused many times on detail views for related records. So for example, 
the detail view for tables needs to use the AG grid column definition data to display fields, related lists of fields. So I needed to have the, the list view of fields done and all that data defined and then abstracted into its own file so that it can be reused on multiple components. And there's still some work to be done on how we, we do that. Right now it's done in a view mixin so that can just be imported into each component. Um, there's a argument to be made that we should just be doing that in a JSON file and import it directly. And that would give us the flexibility of swapping out different JSON files for different locales, in different languages. But the, the reason I haven't done that part yet is because some of the definitions of that JSON data are actual view objects, not just strings or numbers, the actual mm -hmm. classes in, in the view sense. Um, so I'm not really sure how to, how to, that would map over in the same way. But yeah, there's a lot to figure out there. And then, you know, spent the last couple of days thinking about the detail views and the workflow for populating them. And there's some work I need to do on kind of cleaning up the pipeline of how everything is rendered. There's like, the, the detail views are really weird in that every detail view has its own view component. The scaffolding of that component is rendered from a mix-in. Actually, it's rendered from, no, it's, it's actually rendered from another component using a bunch of slots. Um, so that's how you get the vertical tab system and basically, None of the data goes in that way, but there are slots for the tabs and slots for the tab area content or content area. So I need to, you know, there's some weird duplication of code that I need to kind of clean up there. But then the actual content from the detail the use coming from Mixin. So it's like we're using two weird abstraction paradigms in one place. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's, it's strange. Like it works, but it's weird. Yeah. It's a horribly complicated architecture for making really complicated data express very simply. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the end result is super readable and clean. Yeah. But figuring out how to A, make that stuff work and B, make it common so we can share code across these things and not be hand coding every single detail view mm -hmm. down to the pixel is is important just sheerly because of the number of things we want to show details on. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to figure out there. So yeah, the meeting we'll have on Wednesday is basically a, a thousand tiny things to talk through many of the list view stuff and then some of the detail views I've started to work on. And I have no idea how long this initial pass of development will take on the detail views. It'll take longer than the list views because mm -hmm. I'm doing more than one thing each time. But so I'm, I'm also trying to brainstorm on how to speed up that process for myself. Uh, a lot of it is, it just comes down to taking a list of fields from the SQL database and turning it into a big giant blob of mostly JSON, but more like JavaScript, arrays of JavaScript objects 
that might be transferable into JSON if we can figure out how to encode those class names or component names out. Um, so I need to figure out that pipeline and kind of clean it up a little bit so I can spend as little time and effort doing that. Right now it's a very manual process of like, you know, I, I've automated some of it, like copy the field definitions from SQL in, and I've got a little FileMaker file that will transform that into the JSON object. But then I need to go over each one of those those objects in that array and look at, okay, is this column a number? Is it a, you know, which of the number types is it? Is it a Boolean? Which render does it need? What filters does it need? That type of stuff. And we've got about a dozen field types or column types at this point. So it's just, it's not really anything that can be one-to-one -one mapped from, this, from the SQL backend because not all of those data types exist in SQL. Like we, there are many things where you're just handing me a string, but I've got eight different ways to handle strings depending on what the actual content is. Yeah, is it a, a calculation definition? Is it CSS? Is it the name of something? Mm -hmm. Is it likely to be a paragraph of text? Yeah. That kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, I think it's best to make a, basically a database of this stuff so that we can generate it from FileMaker and then re-export it as needed Mm -hmm. um, so I need to figure out how to get a, kind of a two-way pipeline for that working as well. Maybe not two-way, yep. but at least a one-way pipeline where I can edit in FileMaker and spit out a JSON file that will reload the live project so I can kind of see the changes as I go. It would be even more ideal if I could just plug it into the REST API and build myself a little tool in the application in FM Perception Next where I can edit the column definitions and then have those get sent back to the FileMaker server, kind of copy the changes over for, for, for future use. But that is a, I could spend more time doing that than is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> that is an understatement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I actually did basically the same thing for FM Perception Classic, where I've got a FileMaker database that's just been sitting in the repo for the last six years that uh, um, has all the definitions for the information in the grid, but I wasn't smart enough to do anything like that for the detail view in the sidebar. And so those are basically hand coded. They've got some common shared code that's used to style them consistently, but they're basically hand coded each time. Yeah. And avoiding that would be, awesome because my goodness the amount of code that is in that source file is <laughs> humongous yeah yeah i mean we could be accused of using the same hammer to solve every problem but you know we're filemaker guys that's what we do <laughs> maybe think of filemaker more as like a swiss army hammer it's yeah got lots of little hammer heads that we can use for different problems so one of the things that I was doing in, in preparation for this, and this isn't programming, but this is programming adjacent, mm -hmm. is I decided that as part of shaking up my process, I also wanted to shake up the visuals of what I was working with. And this is the kind of time when I would switch from dark mode to light mode when programming or something like that. And one of the things that I, the big piece that I wanted to tackle here, largely inspired by a Twitter feed 
that I saw that I'll add a link to for the show notes um, is selecting a new programming font. Hmm. Now, Joe, is your programming font something that you care about? Not at all. Okay. I, I um, have whatever default font and default theme VS Code has. Yeah. I I fell in love with good programming fonts quite a while ago. Um, moved from, I think Monaco was the Apple default at the time. Mm-hmm. And found Inconsolata, which is a variant on the Consolas font. Mm-hmm. And then a Inconsolata-DZ, which had lovely little programming stuff that they'd added to it, like making curly quotes very very obvious like humongous and differentiating a comma from a period was was a huge difference so it just made it much easier to read code and i loved it so much and i periodically reviewed it but i liked it so much that i've stuck with it for at least the last decade Hmm. Um, just a fantastic font and generally noticeably better than almost anything else i would I would see as the default. So it's usually one of the first things that I change when I grab a new development environment. But we're going to take a look at it, play with it. Uh, I looked at all the big um, leaders in the field, Source Code Pro, uh, JetBrains Mono, Deja Vu, Sans Mono, Fira Code, which is one of the ones that kind of led the push for uh, ligatures in programming. Um, <clears throat> typographically, a ligature is when two characters that appear next to each other in text will be treated as kind of a special character. So you might see it um, in the most common place that you would see it is someplace where like an A and an E appear next to each other and they get shoved together to form kind of this special character. Mm-hmm. In programming terms, what they're doing with things like JavaScript is doing a, if you do a exclamation point and two equal signs, it will actually render it as a very, very wide equal sign with a slash through the middle. Hmm. Yeah, FileMaker has that in the calculation dialog for its symbol for that. It's, a, it's yeah. much smaller, but yeah. Yeah, so that's that's actually using the not equals character. Mm-hmm. But in the case of the ligatures, you actually type exclamation point equals equals, and those characters, when they co- fall together, render in this special way. Mm-hmm. There's still three characters, but they, they change the, the, the visual appearance of it. At this point, basically nothing that I work with works really well with the ligatures. So I don't care about that stuff. And honestly, I find them a little bit annoying. I, I, I love the look of them, but I don't want to be paying attention to the difference in width between exclamation point equals equals and exclamation point equals equals equals. <laughs> like they're now exactly the same symbol, just slightly wider. And that doesn't give me the differentiation that I need. But when I'm looking at code where somebody's done it and posted a screenshot online, it looks gorgeous. Like I want to love these ligatures. 
I just freaking can't. Um, I think in that case, they should like take the slash that they've put through the equals and move it off center so that it's obvious that this is not the same as the other one. I don't know. Um, so one of the ones that was recommended is Apple's new kind of terminal font, mm-hmm. which is this SF mono. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I was flipping through these things, it's a little wide. The, the characters are a little wide. And so you can't quite fit as much text on a line, which is usually a critical thing for me, but it's so sharp. Hmm. Like on a retina display, the clarity and readability of that code was just noticeably better than anything else I compared it to, including my beloved Enconsolata. Uh, um, so can, can you take it with you to your Windows development environment? Um, I don't know if that's legal. You can now download the SF Mono, even if it's not included as a standard font in your build from Apple. Hmm. But I didn't read the details in the licensing to find out whether they'd be okay with you moving it over. I think it's just an open type font. Like once it's installed. Um, probably to get around that, what they did is when you download it from Apple, it comes in an installer package. Of course. So if you've installed it on your Mac, you can probably rip it out and stick it on your Windows machine. It better not be a DMG. <laughs> uh, it was absolutely a DMG oh, God. With, with an actual installer application in it or an installer package. So you could use like a package ripper or something like that, but you're going to want to start from a Mac if you want to grab this font. But yeah, I was really impressed by it. The only real problem is that width. And I'm only concerned about that on my M1 MacBook Air. Mm. I am not going to have the screen width to fully support that. And so I found another font that I think I'll use on the M1. It's called Iosevka. Mm-hmm. I may have the pronunciation on that way off. Um, but we'll include a link for that as well. It looks a little funky, but because it is actually an actively condensed font, but it was the only one of the condensed fonts that I saw that was actually still super readable to me. Hmm. Like it's, it's really sharp, really nice, just slightly too compressed for where I want to be when I'm on my 27 inch iMac. But I think it's going to look fantastic on the air. So that's the stuff I'm going to be playing with when we meet next. Okay. And I know that doesn't hold any particular interest for you, but I love beautiful typography. And I notice a difference in how I feel sitting down and reading code that just never hurts my eyes. Hmm. Or it only hurts my eyes when it's the content of the code, (laughs) (laughs) not the rendering of the fonts. So uh, you've been working on a bunch of side project stuff, yeah? Not a bunch. Just we talked last week or last episode about the mildly amusing words. And I haven't really done anything else with that other than posting words. So Mm -hmm. probably maybe an hour's worth of attention has gone into it since then. And it's funny, just like the, the... phenomenon of like 
something sticking into my head and my brain just starting to play with a word and eventually out comes a ridiculous phrase that has to go on the internet. And it's one of those things that I have been accused of, quote, making that face when I, by my friends. Like they can tell that <laughs> something horrible is about to come out of my mouth. <laughs> but uh, no one is here to see it, but I'm just... I'm uh, posting it on the internet instead. But yeah, so that's been up and running. And then I've been, we talked a little bit about the links blog for the immersive web that I want to make. And there are a lot of approaches I can take to that. I mean, the core of the project is I want to make a place where I can collect and share links to interesting things that people can do with a VR or AR headset on the web as opposed to just the app stores. There's no shortage of sources of like how to find good games to try. Oh, I, you know, I just got my new Oculus Quest. What do I try first? Like there's all kinds of stuff for that, but not as many people realize that there is this growing cottage industry of web developers who are making stuff either professionally or, you know, consumer sites just all kinds of stuff you can do from short little demos to full-blown games and experiences and in museums and uh, social sharing sites and all kinds of stuff to do. So I'm working on kind of a library of that stuff. And part of that is I don't want to just link to every single thing and I don't want to link to a whole bunch of tech demos and I'm not making this for developers. I'm making this for a general audience. So we talked a little bit about how I was going to approach it. Um, and I've, I've thought through a bunch of different ways to structure the data and I'm never going to get anything done if I do any of those ideas. So the, the simple idea that I arrived at was use WordPress for the blog for the content that I'm writing about these things and then make a, a simple MySQL database that will hold the links in a separate table or a separate structure. And I could pull those in as a separate page on the blog. And even that was too complicated because I'm gonna spend way too much time just getting the data just right and never get anything done. So I threw that away as well and decided this entire thing is a WordPress blog. And I've got essentially two different post types. One is a regular full length post type and the other is a link type that has a couple of custom properties defined with it. Um, but it's mostly just indistinguishable from another blog post other than the fact that it sits in the library category and then it can have subcategories from that level down. Um, someday down the road, I may structure this into a more comprehensive relational database structure, but it was one of those things that like, is more important to me to get something out there sooner than it is to have the data just right. And because I'm a database junkie, I could spend months and months and months getting the data just right <laughs> or getting the perfect database schema and not having anything to put in it. Um, so I'm not doing that. Instead, I'm just using you know, pretty, pretty basic WordPress tools of using posts. So I've got kind of four different types of posts. There are the library, which is the, the links themselves. Each link just has a short text description, the link itself, and maybe a screenshot or two. 
Um, and so that's kind of like the, the core of the site. And then the other stuff, the written posts describing those are broken into a couple different things. One is the spotlight post where I want to draw attention to a, a specific link that's in the database. And, you know, maybe an interview with a developer or doing a live stream of it or sharing videos to it. Just something I want to highlight in more detail. And then the other would be collections. So kind of hand curated collections of things that follow a specific technology or a specific theme. Um, and these are things that I think will be really fun because I can curate my own over time from the library, but I could also potentially have other people from the VR community write a guest post to write their own collection for some particular technology or theme that they're interested in. And then possibly another category that I haven't decided that fits in this site or not, but would basically be remixes for any time a developer who's made a, an immersive web scene or product, if they've open sourced it and I want to take my own crack at it, it could be fun to do that. But I'm not convinced hmm. that necessarily belongs on this site. Um, maybe I'll just occasionally refer to it in the blog, but I might do that on my, my company site or one of my other domains. But it could be fun to you know, take a starting point that other people are familiar with and, and go my own direction with it. So yeah, that's posts and categories. And then I'm just kind of loosely using tags in place of the much more complex schema that I was initially thinking. Um, and really for now, I'm just using tags to kind of capture themes and common factors. Like I'll have a tag for hand tracking, but I'm not gonna have a tag for every VR input mechanism. Um, maybe someday I'll go through all the links and figure out, okay, this link, this scene is supported on these headsets and it supports these controllers. But I think as the WebXR spec becomes more stable and more people implement it at a platform level, that type of stuff will be less important. And it'll be, it'll be more reliable to click on a web, web VR scene and just hop into it and know that your headset is supported rather than this kind of wild west that we have today where it's like, I can hop into a scene and, and the Quest controller, the Quest 2 controllers don't work because they specifically targeted the Quest 1 controllers in the API instead of using Babylon JS or A-Frame to abstract that out. But I'm not gonna do any of that at this point. I'm really just gonna focus on, I mean, largely focusing on stuff that works in the Quest because that's what I'm using. So if it's if it doesn't work at all in the quest, it's probably not going to make it onto the site, um, <laughs> unless I hear about it from somebody else. <laughs> and it's particularly noteworthy. And uh, so yeah, that's the idea. Um, one of the reasons I want to do this in these kind of standard tables, post categories, and tags is because one of the things I want to do with this is pull this data into WebXR and make my own scenes with the data. So make a, a giant tag cloud that you can go and visit and, and find different posts that way or navigate the category hierarchy or scrub through the posts in a timeline, organize them spatially, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that stuff will make much more interesting examples for other developers if it's not using a bunch of custom stuff if I can, you know, share some plugin code or some theme, child theme examples that other developers, other WordPress developers can use to pull their content into VR. I think that's a lot more valuable than 
a totally custom database schema. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the reasons I decided to to go with WordPress in the first place. And as I was building all this custom stuff on top of it, I'm like, all of this kind of subverts that reason that I'm here in the first place. So I'm going to go back to the simple stuff. So I've got a really good theme um, that I'm using. There's a company called Cadence, Cadence with a K instead of a C. And I've used, I've had a site license for them for years and I've used their Ascend theme on probably a dozen sites. And their stuff is really rock solid. Last winter, they launched a new theme that's basically kind of rebuilding a lot of their core ideas, but in a really much newer, modern WordPress way of doing things without really bringing all of the old paradigms with it. And it's still relatively new, so it's not as feature-rich as some of their older themes, but it's just really nice to work with. It's quite visually appealing and super customizable. And it's got this really interesting uh, hooks feature where you can essentially say this content will show up dynamically on these types of pages based on these conditions. Um, Some really cool features there. So I'm using that as the theme and I've got it to the point now where I've got the entire workflow for adding a library post and writing about the library post. All of that can be done in VR in the Oculus browser. So I don't have to do any of this work bouncing between machines or saving stuff for later to a a to-do list or anything like that. I can find a link, throw it in my WordPress backend as a draft, and then pop into VR, visit the link, check it out, take some screenshots, write some thoughts about it, record a video about it, you know, crop the photos, trim the videos, upload it all to WordPress and write the post and add it to the library. So I can do all that with the headset on. Um, and that's going to be important for me to actually do this on a regular basis because currently just like juggling the links from, you know, I find a link on Twitter and I, save it to a to-do list or a text file somewhere. And I might remember to check it out in the headset. And then I check it out in the headset, but then the screenshots are on the headset and I need to write the blog post on my Mac or PC. It's like, it's just been kind of a disjointed mess. So I spent a little time just kind of streamlining that workflow so I can do everything on the headset. And it's actually currently, yeah, the Quest and like a, basically a head-mounted Chromebook. <laughs> <laughs> That creates a fascinating mental picture. Right. So yeah, that's the that's kind of where the project is now. Um the the, the goals for launching the site, there's a web WebXR developer summit on May twenty-fifth. So I'd like to have it done by then, maybe a week or two before that, ideally, so I can have it out there and get some feedback. Um one of the things I'm exciting excited about with this is being able to update my resume slash Twitter bio and add the word curator to my list of mm. job titles. I've always been kind of obsessed with libraries and and catalogs and, and curating collections and stuff like that. So turning this into something that I do um, that I think could be beneficial for people, but is also kind of like a, a lifelong dream of like, I'm never gonna be a librarian, but if I make my own library, I can be the librarian <laughs> and the curator. 
I, I like the word curator. I've also always been a big fan of the word docent. Mm, okay. Yeah, VR docent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using the uh, VR hermit username as my username on the site, on the WordPress <laughs> site. So you can see that, you know, all the posts were edited by VR hermit. Um, and I, I've got the singular VR hermit domain as well. And I might use it as my kind of my place to do those remixes or WebXR experiments that all the public facing stuff that I'm doing. Uh, so yeah, I want to populate the library. So in, in order to work backwards from that May 25th deadline, I want to populate the library with some links. I've got about 35 links in draft mode right now, and I've got about half a dozen published. Um, I want to write a couple of spotlight posts, maybe get into the, I don't know if I want to make that like a scheduled thing or just a whenever I feel like it thing. I have some thinking to do there, but a spotlight post would always be the latest spotlight post would be pinned to the top of the page when you go to the site um, mm -hmm. so everybody could see it, but it would still allow you to easily access the rest of the library. And then make a couple custom collections um, just you know thematically or you know hand tracking just launched in the in the quest browser for consumers so maybe write a hand tracking collection here's a you know mm -hmm. five things you can try out and the collections are real kind of clickbaity you know 10 things you can do in vr type of things but with a you know a written article about them and then just embedding each of the links from the library in that yeah well and simultaneously they're articles that you've checked out and found them to be less clickbaity in content. Mm -hmm. Like if you found an article that was 10 things to do with hand tracking in VR and the article sucked, mm -hmm. you wouldn't cross link to it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, <laughs> that's always one of the things that I'm challenged by when I'm looking for this kind of content is there's all those things that have been proper, properly optimized for Google AdWords and they pop right to the top mm, yeah. and they're junk. And so I have to click through a bunch of top 10 lists before I find one that's a real top 10 list that's been, that's useful. Yeah, so the collection posts will be probably the most fun part of the site. I'm just gathering together different collections of things. Um, and then uh, eventually a, an experimental version of the WebXR UI. So starting with some really basic stuff of just, you know, loading the most recent articles, there are some limitations to what I can do with that. So I think I'm focusing more on like creating your collection from the data in VR. So like, here's all of these available links. Let me check the ones that I want and then export a list of those or add them to my bookmarks or you know, favorite them for later or something like that, or just, I don't know, open all of them in new tabs, minimum viable product. Um, but eventually I'll have, you know, thinking through what, <laughs> what, what does a blog post look like in VR? Like these collection posts are a really good example where I've got, you know, maybe a, a couple of images and video and a written article about this collection and then the four or five links for that collection. How can I represent that in VR? as you know four or five different objects can i get 3d models from each of the developers or make my own 3d models to represent each of those links and then cross link from one scene to another you can't really do that across domains at this point with webxr but at least pop the user out of vr so yeah the the entire 
WebXR interface for this type of stuff. I've got tons of ideas. It probably won't be there at launch and what is there will probably be marked as experimental. Um, the biggest limitation behind this type of stuff is that in Babylon.js, there isn't really a good way to render HTML content. So I can pretty much just do plain text only. So the I talked about adding a couple custom properties to the post table and those two properties are a text version of the link and a plain text version of the description for the link with no HTML markup in it. So that when I publish the link in the WordPress CMS, it's got the rendered HTML with whatever styling I applied to it, embedded images and stuff like that. But when I'm rendering it on a material or texture in Babylon.js, I just need plain text and I can style it myself there. That will eventually no longer be a problem as things like the WebXR layers spec advances and we can actually pull DOM content into VR, but that's not the case yet. So at some point it'll become much more interesting what I can do with traditional web technology on 3D models in VR, but we're not there yet. Yeah, this is one of those things that I've spent a lot of time thinking on and because I'm using WordPress, I've spent very little time doing any work, which is kind of nice. It's got like lots of thinking and minimal amount of effort. That's like my native environment. So there was an Apple event last week. Mm -hmm. Are you going to buy a bunch of new computers? Uh, no, or at least not yet. Yeah. I'm going to buy a new Apple TV probably, or at least the remote. Yeah. The, the remote looks good. If I hadn't literally just migrated all of my media watching to my Xbox, mm -hmm. I would be all over that remote. Um, I did see a bunch of people posting that uh, it was a missed opportunity for Apple to make the remote a findable device using Find My. Yeah. Like, guys, it's it's kind of obvious there. You give that thing a little bit of tile-like chip or whatever in there so you can find the stupid thing when it disappears into the couch cushions or something like that. But um, aside from that, the remote looks fantastic. Um, if I was in the market for a new Apple TV, I would totally get the whole package. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I, I would need to actually replace my home theater receiver to be able to make substantive use of it. And that's been in the cards for a couple of years. And I'm going to see if I can make it another couple of years before I actually do it. <laughs> yeah. The, overall, there was, there was a pretty new iMac that I don't want. And I kept waiting for them to say, and it's a touchscreen, and then I would want it, but it's not. <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're, it's a nice design. I think I have lots of customers who are going to buy those, especially front, front of house workstations, but uh, not for me. And then the same thing with the iMac or iPad Pro. They kept talking about, you know, oh, it's got the M1 in it now. It's, it's super powerful for all these reasons. And I'm just like, just just say Mac OS. Just say it runs Mac OS. And they didn't say it runs Mac OS. So that's not for me either. People are holding out hope that maybe that'll be a WWDC thing that they'll say now it can boot Mac OS. And if, if so, that'll be an interesting device. But as right. it stands, it's just like 
I've, I've given, I've, I put more effort in than is necessary trying to work on iOS. And it's just lots of people can do it successfully, but I'm not one of them. Yeah. And that was the biggest component of my not yet. Because mm -hmm. if that thing can run Mac OS, I'm going to give it six or nine months to let them work the bugs out of it. And then I'll be all about an iPad, whether it's a, a some sort of convergence mode that can do both, or even if it's literally just a dual boot, like a boot camp mm -hmm. variant that can boot into either. That just sounds fantastic to me. Yeah. That would be my perfect computer. Um, yeah. I will be all over it. Yeah, I don't think it would ever be my primary workstation. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess you could plug it into a bigger screen. But even with a MacBook, I didn't really like running a MacBook in clamshell mode all the time because I was wor always worried about overheating it. Mm -hmm. um, Less of a concern on an M1. I don't know. I mean, the A12 got pretty freaking hot just watching a YouTube <laughs> video. <laughs> um, and I've I've actually... Basically, the only time I've ever run my MacBook in clamshell mode was by accident. <laughs> um, by like closing it while it was still on and then hitting a keyboard mm. command on the external keyboard. Um, I've always left them open because that's usable screen real estate. Yeah. It, it never even, in a normal day, it never occurs to me to run it in clamshell mode. Yeah, I just don't like to. I don't. I'm not a multi-screen user. I'm all about the multi-screens. I know you're. <laughs> I'm a multi-screen user in VR, where I can turn the entire Joe and face different directions. But when, as long as the mouse and keyboard are stuck to a fixed orientation, huh? then like twisting myself around, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Well, and I usually use my secondary screens for documentation or reference. Mm -hmm. So I'll turn to look at them, but I don't spend a long time looking there. Whatever I'm most focused on is on the center screen. Yeah. Uh, but if I need a blog, you know, some tutorial that I'm following, I can throw that onto my left or my right hand screen and then work in the middle and have the full 27 inches to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll kind of do that sometimes with the TV. If I'm watching a video tutorial i'll just watch that on the tv and take the laptop and sit on the couch i used to do that a lot more with when i had a mac laptop because i could airplay to the tv but the the windows laptop doesn't do that i guess i could probably chromecast it yeah the the big thing for me on the imac was i'm looking for something to differentiate these machines mm -hmm. and for me it's usually performance um that's usually why i got my primary reason for getting 15 inch MacBook Pros wasn't because of the larger screen real estate because many times I was working plugged in and the rest of it, it's just a portable thing. Like I'm, I'm fine with just about any screen size. The big thing for me is that's where you got the faster processors, more cores, mm -hmm. things like that. And there's nothing differentiating any of the Apple machines so far performance wise. Yeah. I'm waiting for the M1X or the M2 or whatever they decide to call it. Um, that'll A, have more processor power and B, access to more RAM. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, everything they've done so far with the M1 has basically been consumer stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they technically the 13-inch MacBook Pro is called a Pro, but that's not really a heavy hitting machine. They're all low power consumer machines. And uh, yeah, they're like my Mac Mini is great and I don't have any complaints about it. But I'm also just writing JavaScript and HTML and PHP and CSS. Like I'm not taxing this thing. And I don't even do some of the heavier workflows on it. Like when I'm, we're recording the podcast right now, I'm using the Windows PC. When I edit the podcast with Adobe Audition, that thing, it brings this PC to its knees. And I don't even think I could probably get it to install correctly on the M1. <laughs> um, I mean, Adobe Audition in a, during an editing session will use up all of the available RAM on this PC. And this PC has three or four times the RAM that the M1 does. Mm. So I've kept it as basically a text editing machine. And for that, it's been great. But yeah. I, I know for a fact that on a long enough timeline, Apple will eventually release more powerful machines. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, they tackled the consumer stuff first and then they'll start doing the pro stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's probably just a number of, like a game of numbers. Like we we know we sell, the MacBook Air is the best-selling Mac, so let's do that one first. And then mm-hmm. for some reason, they gave the Mac Mini some love, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would, I'm guessing the iMac is probably the next, like the entry-level iMac is something that, you know, companies buy... 500 of them at a time right so let's get that one done let's see more niche configurable pro like a you know nitpicky pro stuff is probably further down on the to to do list yeah so that's another thing i'm hoping to see at wwdc though it may be later i don't know but that would be a perfect time to start talking about it mm-hmm. if they were looking for a perfect time so yeah but until they come out with something faster than an M1 or with more RAM than an M1, I don't need another Apple computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if they just make one of those with a touchscreen. <laughs> just give me one additional input possibility. It would be fantastic. <laughs>